0: Good morning, Christ Community Church. Uh, my name is Jeff Kennedy. I want to welcome you to church this morning. We're going to begin a new series called God of All Grace. That title comes from a letter uh, we'll be looking at over the summer, 1 Peter. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now in chapter 5, verse 10, he ends the letter with these powerful words. He says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, himself restore you establish you strengthen you and support you after you have suffered a little while and we're going to learn together as a church first peter 5 10 and 11 because that's going to be our theme passage for the i think the rest of this year now if you have your bible you can open to first peter chapter one we'll be camping out in verses one and two today and how fitting it is that we get to go through a letter together written by the last person we see in John chapter 21 who was interacting with Jesus in a very significant way. I want to open with a story. I I told a family in our church back in Kennewick, Washington, where I served as a youth pastor in my early 20s, that I wanted to learn guitar because I wanted to help out with worship. And uh, they very graciously, like a couple of weeks later, they came to church and handed me a guitar. Now it was a beat up old plywood Yamaha guitar. And the guy told me that he had found it in a dumpster and he had to glue the neck back onto it to make it playable. And they handed it to me with such pride. And I was so proud of that guitar. I kept it for many years and I took it home and tried to teach myself. Uh, but my playing was, was absolutely appalling. It was terrible. My playing just sounded like clumsy clanking Chords. And after hearing me accompany the worship team a couple times on a Sunday morning in a worship service, uh, that family also decided to give me, in addition to the guitar, uh, guitar lessons. And so uh, they gave me guitar lessons with an old guitar teacher, a guy named Jim. And Jim was a gentleman in his 60s. And I would describe him as a a man who looked like he probably played every bar on the West Coast a couple of times uh, for the last 40 years. And so my first lesson, I walked into his studio, I sat down and introduced myself. Hi, I'm Jeff Kennedy. And I took my old beat up raggedy Yamaha guitar and I began to try to tune it. And after about five minutes of fumbling confusion, Jim said, Hey, uh. Why don't you let me help you with that? And so he tuned that guitar in about 30 seconds. And then to my surprise, he began flat picking a bluegrass tune. And then he switched to rock and roll and then to country. And then he played some really amazing blues licks. And then he asked me, so what type of guitar do you want to learn? It became clear to me in that moment that Jim was what we call a virtuoso. Jim was a master player you see in the hands of a master the most ordinary thing can sound amazing and we have a tendency to think of the apostle paul uh peter i know for me personally i i tend to think of him as uh, all the highlights of his ministry walking on water a dynamic preacher and soul winner on the day of pentecost a leader among leaders but he could only play those tunes and hit those notes because he had been chosen from obscurity from backwater Galilee. Jesus t- chose him and 11 other ordinary men. And when they put their hands and in, in their lives in, in the hands of the master, they would sing the perfect melody of the gospel of grace for the rest of their lives. And today we're beginning a new series and we're going to learn from a guy who knows exactly what it's like to be a nobody from nowhere, to fail despite his best efforts to be overtaken by his own impulsive nature. He's experienced the shame and agony of personal defeat in his devotion to Jesus. But he also has one enduring quality, and that is a quality he is going to transfer to us through this book. He just keeps coming back for more. He just keeps putting himself in the hands of the master, Jesus. His friend and and fellow disciple, Judas, tragically committed suicide because he failed Jesus also. Uh, uh, For whatever reason, Judas just could not get over his failure. He couldn't get past the crushing weight of his betrayal of Christ. Peter's other close friends also abandoned Jesus uh, in their quest in Jesus' greatest hour of need. You see, the shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered, and Peter was the first to receive a revelation that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of God. And even though in the last days of Jesus' life, Peter would actually join the rest of the disciples in denying Jesus, even though he swore he would never do that, he experienced the grace and mercy of the Lord on a beach in John 21, reinstating him. And three times Jesus would ask him, Peter, do you love me? And every time Peter would answer, Lord, I do, yes. And the last time, Peter seemed a little frustrated. He said, Lord, you know I do. And then Jesus gave him this charge, then feed my sheep. And that's just what he does in this letter. This letter is going to nourish the broken soul. This letter will strengthen the weak. It will challenge the wayward. You know, decades after the Jesus movement was born in the early 30s, Uh, after the Jesus movement was born, after the church had scattered out into the Roman world, into every corner of the Roman empire, the message had gone viral before that was even a thing. Churches of Jesus, the Messiah, are springing up in every town, every city, every neighborhood in Rome, and the Roman government can't do anything about it. They can't control it. And so so the purpose of this letter is to connect with those folks, to send them a letter of encouragement in their faith to those Christians who are scattered like exiles throughout the nations. And so what is the message of the letter? Well, it's very simply this. Peter wants to say this, you are the people of God. You're the people of God in an increasingly hostile world and the god of all grace will safeguard the gospel trust that he's put in you and in your life until the day he returns now that's god's promise to us it's not peter's promise it's god's promise that the sacred trust of the gospel that he's placed in your life god himself will safeguard it until the day he returns for you so let's turn to the letter let's read the text chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient, to to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He begins the letter by identifying himself, Peter. I'm that guy. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a leader among leaders. Peter's very name reminds us, the believer, of a life of taking risk for Jesus. A guy who blundered forward, learned from his mistakes, and just kept kept putting his life in the hands of the master. Now, notice that Peter immediately turns, though, to his identity in Christ. He turns to his, his vocation in the Lord, which is his calling. He has been called to be one of the privileged, original 12 apostles. He is an apostle, and that word... Apostolos in Greek just means a herald or one who has been commissioned with a message, one who has been commissioned with a message. And he, like the other 11 and like Paul, they were commissioned with a message to take it out to the nations that there is forgiveness in no other name, Jesus Christ. And so we should emulate Peter's example of of taking risks for Jesus and sharing the truth about him with others. You know, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, I mentioned this, he boldly stepped out and said something that everybody else was thinking, but no one else would say. (laughs) Everybody knew it was true, but no one would dare utter it because their Jewish culture would not allow them to speak a word of it. It was taboo. It was forbidden. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, the first part of that statement isn't particularly controversial for Jews because they were all looking for a Messiah. They were all looking for a Christ all of them were waiting for the messiah to come to deliver them from rome's oppression but the second part of that statement was particularly problematic for a jewish boy saying that god had a unique son was equivalent to blasphemy because in jewish faith god is the one and only i'll say it again in jewish faith god is the one and only god is their god and they are the people israel and they are to shema that's deuteronomy 6 4 and the word shema means here Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one Lord. In other words, there is categorically only and ever been one God, and he's your God. He's your Lord. So to say that God had a son, the only unique son from eternity past, that was blasphemous. And when no other Jew would dare to utter it, Peter steps up when no other jew would think about saying these words or words like this peter goes first he speaks up and he speaks the truth and you and i also need to not be afraid to speak the truth in love don't forget that part but speak the truth in love to our neighbors and to our friends and to our family and our co-workers most of them hold false beliefs about jesus But like Peter, the apostle of Jesus, the Messiah, we are called to make bold moves for the kingdom of God, called to speak boldly about who Jesus is and what he does for all who believe. He forgives sin. He changes the heart and he changes your life. And verse 2 says, To those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says, Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, the modern region he's referring to here is Turkey, uh, modern Turkey. Uh, back then, that's the, these are the cities that would have encompassed that area. And so the cities he's mentioned uh, were strategic administ- administrative centers in the Roman Empire. And the Christian church is flourishing in these regions. And the downside of a church, that is successful. The downside of a church that is doing well is that you get the attention of the people who don't want you to do well, and you get the attention particularly of the devil. You see, those territories were strongholds of Rome and, frankly, strongholds of the enemy, Satan. And the church went courageously, boldly, scattered in those regions to heal the sick, bandage the wounded, comfort the hurting, and bring them into the fold of Jesus. Now there's a lot of very cool Jewish theology that's tucked down into this paragraph, so I just want to take a few minutes to unpack it because it really is the bulk of our message this morning. And so the first thing he says to these Jews and these uh, Gentile Christians is this: We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We were chosen according chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now the word uh, foreknowledge is the word It comes from two terms pra meaning before and ginosko meaning to know or to know by means of experience and so we were known foreknown by god from eternity past now if you were to say that to a jewish christian in the first century they would say sure of course duh i'm a jew <laughs> you know they were used to thinking of themselves that way for a jew they were they viewed themselves to be a chosen race a nation who was a royal priesthood among the nations They viewed themselves to be the special possession of God because God told them that they were. So God had chosen them according to his foreknowledge from eternity past. He set them apart by choosing Abraham and and through Abraham he chose Isaac and through Isaac he chose Jacob and through Jacob he chose the 12 tribes. But then the 12 tribes become a nation and then that nation becomes one man, Jesus the Jew, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. And through Christ, all the nations, all the ethnicities, all the tribes of men are welcomed into now the people of God. And so we are the people of God, both Jew and Gentile. Believers, chosen before the foundations of the world, set apart according to the foreknowledge of God, is God's special possession. Now, that sounds like a grand theological idea. For sure, it is. It's a cool idea. But let's bring it home. Do you tend to think of yourself included in that? Have you taken the time to reflect on just how special it is for you to be chosen, to be a part of the chosen people of God from eternity past, to know that he has decreed the worlds, and when he did, he had you in mind, to know that as the world was unfolding, there was a designing mind behind it all to bring you, you, into the family of Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, a couple years after I got married, as an illustration of this, I, um, or how I feel about this. A couple of years after I got married, I was talking with my mother-in-law, Carletta, just about how Carrie and I had met in college. And we were just talking about all the, how I, we were just constantly running into each other. And I and I remarked on how providential it all seemed. All the coincidences, all the run-ins. And, and like there was a hand of providence behind it. And, and she smiled and replied to me, oh, um, I think you never had a chance from the very beginning. And then it dawned on me, all those coincidences, all those run-ins, all those times I thought that Carrie and I were just sort of coincidentally meeting up, it turns out that Carrie was stalking me. (laughs) It turns out that she knew my schedule. She had figured it out. And she kept putting herself in my path. Actually, we were both doing that. We were both doing that on campus, and it was just a fun time of dating and getting to know each other and, uh, and learning more about each other. But when my mother-in-law said that, the light came on and I realized she had been doing that, and it made me feel really good. It made me feel really good to be wanted. It made me feel really good that someone had a purpose in mine, and they were seeking me, and they were after me, and they were trying to put themselves into my path. And and that's exactly how I see being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You know, when I was a believing teenager, when I first came to the Lord and I discovered this truth in the Word, once I realized in Scripture that there was a designing mind at work and all these coincidences and all these run-ins I had with God to seek me out, to reveal the truth of Jesus to me, to call me his son and to bring me into his family. It was so encouraging to know that I was wanted. It was so encouraging to know that someone was pursuing me. It was so encouraging to look back on all those coincidences and know that God had orchestrated it because he had chosen me according to his foreknowledge, to be a member and a part of his family. And believer, I want you to take no offense at the fact that before the creation of the world, you were loved. You were chosen. You were preordained to be God's own special possession. And he says we were chosen according to God's foreknowledge, and that that's us believers. And he also says that believers are living as exiles, scattered and dispersed. Now, the word he uses for scattered here is the word diaspora. Now, the reason why this is important is because these two terms are trademark Jewish nation terms. In other words, the exiles are the Jews, and he's referring back to the Northern and the Southern kingdom being exiled in Assyria. The Northern kingdom was exiled in Assyria first, and then the Southern kingdom in Judah was exiled to Babylon. And so he's, he's using this, world, this word exile to refer to the church, and then the diaspora, Uh, That is the name, the Jews who were scattered across the empire, the Persian empire and the Greek empire, and later the Roman empire, that's what they called themselves. They were called the Diaspora Jews. So now he calls all Christians this. He uses those two terms uh, about Christians. He says, you are the exiles scattered across the Roman empire. You are the dispersed ones. And so our citizenship, so what it reminds us is that we're part of the kingdom of God. And we live as foreigners in a world today as exiles. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are ambassadors of Jesus, emissaries of His kingdom. We are envoys of His realm, representing that realm wherever God's rule, uh, wherever we are God's rule is. Here's why. because Jesus wants the Father's kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is what happens when a human life, when I was a teenager and I surrendered my life to Jesus, God's will, God's kingdom was done in me, in my heart. And this became God's kingdom. And this is what happens when a human life surrenders and repents of sin because the reign and the rule of heaven comes to the hearts of men. And that kingdom sometimes, oftentimes has competing truths and values to the country we live in or to the world that we live in. It also has a different atmosphere. The kingdom and countries of this world, we breathe an often toxic atmosphere of discord and dissension, civil unrest, fear, heartbreak, and even loneliness. We breathe the air of a culture that all too often embraces, I'm sorry to say, moral insanity exchanging the truth of God and his kingdom for a lie. And where everyone has a tribe, everyone has a tribal God, and true peace and security and and grace seems elusive, almost impossible in this world. Seems just out of range. Now think about the pandemic. Think about it for a second. Think about what the pandemic has exposed and what it has revealed about our culture. Uh, In light of the fact that we are um, all united in the same country, this pandemic has exposed, I believe, the fact that we are hopelessly divided as a nation. Sure, there's a lot of good things happening right now. Folks in our culture, it's encouraging sometimes to see that folks in our culture have, have banded together to make masks or feed the out of work or run food banks. But the leadership in our culture, the media, the university system, the political system, the entertainment system, they seem hopelessly divided to me. Do you remember back at September 11? For those of you who are old enough to remember back uh, when September 11 happened, here's what I distinctly remember. After that tragedy, um, I remember how our leaders were constantly calling the nation to pray for America. I I remember even Oprah Winfrey, Remember she had a massive prayer meeting in a stadium, and she had a bunch of celebrities there to come, and you know, she's not a Christian, but she was people's hearts were just turned to God in that. And uh, while there while there were some encouraging things uh, at the local level that are happening that are going on today, mostly, there seems to be an absence of repentance and unity in the halls of power. There seems to be an absence of people calling us, To national prayer there just seems to be a void of spiritual leadership in our country today the Christian community comes along and 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 what are we it's not their job it's our job we are the kingdom of God established in a hostile territory we're the kingdom of God the exiles scattered across the world and so we breathe a different kind of air than they do we breathe the unity of faith rather than the the divisions Uh, that are so prevalent in our world. We we breathe the air of forgiveness and grace. We are tellers of the truth about God and about his son, Jesus. We are tellers of the truth about heaven and hell and the fate of every person on earth and, and the coming kingdom of God. And so we're peculiar people scattered throughout the world. And he also says we've been set apart by the spirit. Why? We're not just chosen to get our tickets punched or to get our fire insurance from everlasting damnation so that we can escape, uh, the coming judgment, which is certain we're, we're chosen and we're sanctified in order to become more like him. So sanctification, what is sanctification? It just means to set something apart for a special purpose. It is the old Testament idea of, of what's called consecration. That word has really sort of gone out of fashion, but, but, it, but it's a very much a biblical term and a biblical idea. And it means to set something apart or aside, for a special purpose, for a special use in the household. Let me ask you men a question. Men, let me ask you something. Do you live with certain items in your home that are set aside for certain purposes or special occasions? I know in our home there are a couple things that you better not touch. Uh, There's an entire taxonomy, categories, like a hierarchy of, of dish towels and dishes. And if you go into Carrie's Norwex drawer, and you get out her nice Norwex towels, dish towels, and you take them over to say my, where my coffee and my tea station is, and you wipe up coffee and tea spills with her nice Norwex dish towels. In our home, a silent alarm goes off and she descends on you like a dish towel ninja. Mama's gonna get you. Because there are just certain things you don't use her good towels for. Now, if you want to go in the laundry room and grab some of those old things, you can wipe up uh, any spill you want with some of those old towels in the laundry room, but not her Norwex dish towels or her dishes. There are certain dishes we have in our house. They're in a glass cupboard. You can only use them for special occasions like Christmas and Easter and Fourth of July or something like that, you know. When I was growing up, my friend's mom used to have plastic covers on her nice, expensive velour couches. Like the one set of couches they bought in their life that were nice, she decided she didn't want a bunch of sweaty teenagers sitting around after playing hours of basketball in the hot Virginia sun on them. So she covered her nice velour couches in plastic. And those things were miserable to sit in, but what was she saying? She was saying, this thing is not for you. This is set apart for my guests. And that's what sanctification is like. Sanctification just means to set something apart for a special use. Now the Christian is set apart progressively. You and I are set apart for Christ at salvation. We are consecrated to him at salvation, but then we enter a life of being progressively sanctified. We enter a life of, uh, as our sanctification is unfolding, set apart by the smattering of blood. Now in the Jewish sacrificial system, the blood of an animal sacrifice would be sprinkled or smattered all over the mercy seat and and touching every aspect of the furnishings in the Holy of Holies, which was the innermost sanctum of, of the temple. And this is the metaphor that Peter is using. He says, you and I have been sanctified. We've been set apart and consecrated for Jesus by the smattering and the sprinkling of blood. We have been covered by the blood of Jesus. So you are saved, but there's more. Sanctification is not just you being initially saved for eternity and you having that assurance. It also puts you into a lifelong process of what he says, obedience, sanctification to obedience. We aren't merely saved positionally at the beginning. We are saved. Uh, The presence of the Holy Spirit has been richly poured out into our lives and into our hearts that we might walk in obedience to God's word. Paul says this. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. When I was a little kid, uh, I got suspended six times in the fifth grade. I I distinctly remember the sixth time because the principal and my teacher met with my parents and said, if he gets suspended one more time, he's done. He'll be expelled. He will not be coming back to this school. So I was going to be expelled from school permanently. And I think it's fair to say that I, I was a pretty disobedient kid and I remember as a kid I hated follow, following other people's rules. My natural independent spirit was rebellious. I was disobedient. I was, very, I was a very eccentric kid. Everybody who knew me from back then would tell you that's true. I was a very eccentric kid and, and I just couldn't stand being told what to do. I was too fiercely independent i wanted to live according to my own law my own rule and when i became a believer in jesus when i was a teenager i had this immediate transformation this miraculous change in my heart because i immediately became willing and obedient to obey god's word in the bible and i just would scour the pages of scripture particularly the gospel of john i would scour the pages of scripture and paul's teaching to figure out how God wanted me to live and what kind of life he wanted me to lead in the Lord. And here's here's what happened through that. Here's what happened through that. I was transformed socially and civilly through God's word. That is to say, uh, as a teenager, I still got into trouble sometimes in high school. I spent all five years in high school trying to push back, kick against this grain in my sinful nature, this genetic thing that was in my sinful nature that just wanted to live independently of anyone else's rule. And I eventually learned civil obedience from spiritual obedience. There was no way that I was going to live in in a disobedient state to God's word. And God taught me how to live in obedience to my teachers and my job, my boss at my job. And so God taught me obedience And that's the sanctification process the sanctification process is not just getting saved and being sprinkled by the blood right and having the assurance of salvation it is also god moving us into a willing life of surrender to his word you and i have been called to be sanctified in obedience and so that's sanctification it's set apart it's being consecrated to god and his purposes it is the process of being of being consecrated to the purposes of god conformed to the image and likeness of god's obedient son by the power of the holy spirit see you can't do it alone he says right here by the spirit if you didn't have the power of the third person of the trinity god's precious holy spirit then you and i could absolutely not be conformed to the pattern of godliness um, now do we do all of this for salvation the answer is no We do it because we already have salvation. We do it because we already have been sprinkled and sanctified by the blood. Do we conform our lives to the pattern of godliness, developing a passion for the truth in God's word because we want to merit um, justification? No, justification is by faith. We do it overwhelmed with gratitude because he first loved us. He first gave himself for us um he took the initiative to love me and choose me before the foundation of the world jesus took the initiative to love me and choose me as his pride possession the apple of his eye the reason for his passion and his suffering the motive for his vindication and resurrection to save us to forgive us to bring us from the rebel kingdom of darkness in this present age to into the kingdom of his glorious son and into the kingdom of light and that we might become participants in his trinitarian life that we might know the joy of having been sought after discovering the design behind all those coincidences being saved washed by the blood of jesus positionally seated in heaven realm heavenly realms having the assurance of salvation but then also being conformed to the pattern of godliness, godliness in his word let me take a minute and pray for you okay will you bow your head let's pray Jesus, today, would you just help us? Help every person that is listening or watching. Would you help us in in this time to grasp how wide and how deep and how vast is the love of Christ for us? Would you help us to see that, that you had designs on us from the very beginning, that you have been seeking and saving that which was lost from the very beginning? Would you help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus? That we might be filled to the fullest measure possible with your spirit that we might be changed from one degree reflecting your glory to the next as we look onward to resurrection glory god we trust you and we know that you will safeguard the sacred trust of the gospel in us until you return for us we love you lord in jesus name amen thanks guys i'm going to turn it back over to daniel now and we're going to sing one last song and uh and and lift our voices in worship to the Lord. God bless you. Can't wait to see you again.